Hi and welcome. This is Bob Groves uh, and this is the Provost podcast series, Faculty in Research. Today we have with us Dr. Diana Kapaszewski, who is a Provost Distinguished Associate Professor in the Department of Government here. She's the author of multiple journal articles and, and four books, including the award-winning High Courts and Economic Governance in Argentina and Brazil. She's currently examining judicial politics and law in Latin America. One project analyzes institutions of electoral governance, and another investigates constitutionalism with adjectives, the practice of adding an adjective to constitutionalism and legal scholarship. Beyond her work in that field, she's also distinguished in the area of research methods, co-founding the Qualitative Data Repository and co-editing the Cambridge University book series, Methods of Social Inquiry. Diana, it's great to have you here with us. Thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. Maybe we should start just with your reflections and memories of how did you end up at Georgetown University in the Department of Government? The route is a little bit circuitous. I was a, an undergraduate uh, Spanish major um, and then did an MA in Spanish and it was through um, doing that uh, learning and research about Spanish that led me to an interest in Latin America. Uh, so then I did actually an MA in Latin American Studies at Georgetown in the mid-1990s and then served for four years as uh, Director for Academic Programs in the Center for Latin American Studies and I taught Spanish as an adjunct. So I was dedicated and committed to Georgetown but also knew that I wanted to get uh, an advanced degree. So I went off and, and did a, a PhD in political science at Berkeley and then spent five years at UC Irvine. But the dream was always to come back to Georgetown. A few years into my job at Irvine, a, job, a position came open at Georgetown and I applied and, and got the job. It looks like the journey began with an interest in a region and a language. Exactly. And then it morphed into issues of a, a, a set of substantive concerns mm -hmm. through the discipline of political science. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that juncture. Do you, uh -huh. What do you remember about going from One region? Yeah. So while I was doing the MA in Spanish, it was a, a summer program at Middlebury College, and I was also teaching um, junior high and high school Spanish. Uh, and it seemed to me really odd to teach the language out of context. I had them do news broadcasts. My maiden name was Brown, so they would say they would be they were reading El País, which is a, a newspaper from Spain, and learning about Spain and learning about Latin America and doing their news broadcasts on the basis of El País. And so they would say, Miss Brown, who's Allende? And who's Augusto Pinochet? And and what happened in Chile? And I was deeply embarrassed and felt somewhat irresponsible that I didn't know. So as a Spanish major, I knew everything about punctuation and, and Lorca and Spanish literature, but very little about the context in which all of this happened. And that led to the MA in Latin American Studies, which led to an interest in, in, in government, uh, which led to the rest. And, and you moved from Georgetown, which is a relatively small research university, mm -hmm. to, to one of the largest in, in the world, perhaps. Yeah. What, what was that like? What so was that, that move was, like? And it was not just Georgetown. I had, I had my, done my undergraduate at Dartmouth and then did the MA in Spanish at Middlebury and then was at Georgetown. So my entire trajectory had been these uh, smaller uh, uh, institutions. And to be quite honest, I went to do my PhD because I love to teach. And I thought I'd need to do that research thing along the way somewhere, probably. But really, I wanted to be able to teach at the university level. And I think it was through being at a place like 
Berkeley that it really awakened in me a passion for research that I did not even know was the case. And so I ended up having the passion for research and having the passion for teaching. And so every day I get to do things that I absolutely love to do across the spectrum. But that was a surprise to me. I didn't expect to love the research as much as it turns out that I do. What could be better? <laughs> uh, so tell me now that you're, you've advanced in your career, you've seen success on both sides, how do those roots come into play? How does language and culture inform your, the issues you raise in political science? Uh, it one, one way is, it, I can think of two ways. One way is a little bit humorous, um, and the other way is a little bit more serious. Uh, the humorous way is, I, my dissertation is, and my first book, as you mentioned, are Argentina and Brazil. And I, that was not the plan. The plan was that the book was going to be, the dissertation and then the book was going to be Argentina and Venezuela. So I went to Argentina with the idea of having my second case study be Venezuela. And suffice to say, politics in Venezuela did not work out as I expected them to, and it, and it became quite obvious quite quickly that it would not be good as a second case. And I had been resisting the notion of Brazil because it's a big, complicated country. And I and a different language. And I didn't know the language. I didn't know the first word in Portuguese. But the research, the, but the, the utility of Brazil as the counter to, at, to Argentina, given what the dissertation was focusing on, was so great. And I asked a bunch of my colleagues and, and other graduate students, and they said, Diana, you have to do Brazil. So I learned Portuguese in Buenos Aires, which was obviously Portuguese for Spanish speakers because it was a class with a bunch of Argentines, but I took Port uh, intense Portuguese, intensive Portuguese for nine months in Buenos Aires and learned Portuguese and did all of my interviews in Brazil in Portuguese. But <laughs> because I'm a language person, I, every once in a while I would be listening to an in, in, listening in, in an interview, listening to a response to one of my questions, and I would think, what an interesting use of the subjunctive. <laughs> and then I would lose the next 20 seconds of the conversation because I was thinking, why did the person use the subjunctive? It should have been the future subjunctive. Why was it this subjunctive? So it come, it came in. It, that's the humorous way in which it, in which it came in. The more interesting way in which uh, my interest in, in language and culture came in is in the language of law as a language in and of itself, practically. So not not only did I need to learn, I knew Spanish, not only did I need to learn Portuguese, but I needed to learn the language of Portuguese. It's kind of a mix between civil law and constitutional law. So I sort of needed to teach myself uh, Brazilian constitutional law at the same time that I was learning Portuguese and, and trying to figure out the, the whole Brazilian context. And I think my facility with language allowed me to just sort of click onto that as an additional aspect of language and learn it perhaps more easily than it would have, than it, I would have had I not sort of had this language and cultural background. Tell us a little about the book. What was the driving question you were trying to answer in that wonderful book that you created? I went thinking that this was going to be a book about high court decision making. Compared to judicial politics, at the time that I um, began to do this research was a pretty new thing. There, a boom had begun in comparative judicial politics and in comparative politics in U.S. political science towards the end of the 1990s. So there was not a lot on this, and in fact, there was a great, there was at least some resistance from my dissertation advisors at Berkeley about this topic at all. Um, so it was relatively new, and one of the um, uh, questions that had begun to capture the imagination of those beginning to discover the interest of law and courts in Latin America was about high court decision making, which is also obviously an emphasis in, in U.S. public law. So the, I started out with a very vanilla question of why do high courts in these two countries, with the second ending up being Brazil, decide cases as they do? 
And I made two adjustments once I was there learning about things on the ground. The first was I realized my, my initial idea was to focus on politically important cases. I soon realized that at this, at the particular moment that I wanted to study, which was the first 20 years after the transition to democracy in each country, the really politically crucial and legally crucial cases were about economic reform. Because these cases put these courts at the, at a, in a practically untenable position. On the one side, they had uh, leaders, uh, elected leaders, passing these austere economic policies saying this is the only way out of our crisis. But they violated property rights and they violated other aspects of the law. And on the other side, we have a Supreme Court whose supreme obligation is to defend the law. And they have to decide what to do with these cases, where on the one side, the government says, if you rule against us, you will sink the ship of state. And on the other side, their obligation is to the Constitution. And these two courts took on that challenge uh, really differently. And, and that was the first adjustment that I made was to focus just on those cases. The second adjustment was I realized that it doesn't matter a whit what high courts are deciding if no one is listening. And so it's critical to add in compliance. I needed to understand did the did the uh, did the um, did the elected leaders respond to those decisions? Did they obey those decisions? Did they ignore them? Did they foot drag? What did they do? So the dependent variable in the study morphed from high court decision making to to then two to two dependent variables briefly into the actual dependent variable in the dissertation and the book which was patterns of interaction between high courts and elected leaders and what they looked like in Argentina and Brazil and then what explained there the mm -hmm. difference that story it seems to me illustrates what seems to be often true that the initial question that we tackle despite the fact that we think we fully are sophisticated in our insights about the question, ends up morphing in ways that are completely unexpected. Is that how you see your work often? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the, uh, so I realize we'll probably talk about methods a little bit later, but let me just put something in about that. A spinoff of, of a book that I co-authored on field research, we're writing a, a standalone article on the basis of that book. Um, and one of the things that we are, re that the, the main focus of that article is on the iterative nature of, of, uh, of, of a lot of political science. So there's this notion in the discipline of this sort of linear path that you um, have a question, there's a theory, you generate hypotheses, you test them, and you, and you come up with an answer. And, and in particular, political science research that, is, that involves field research we think really is rarely that clean. It just, just simply doesn't work like that on the ground, um, in part because if you're going to spend some significant amount of time in a, in a foreign context learning about it, by definition, you don't know as much as you don't know that much or you wouldn't be going to that place to do, to do that research and learn about those things. But because of the way that we think about this linear nature of the research process um, and because of word limits on articles and books, all of that iteration falls out and we don't end up seeing it in the published products. So all we see is this pristine book that looks as if the author knew precisely what they were doing going in, executed their research design and came out the other end, which I think is really daunting for graduate students because they think, how would I, I will never be able to do that when the fact is the author didn't do it either. So we're tr what we're trying to say in this article is iteration is not only acceptable, it's good, it can lead to fine outcomes. You need to be careful about it. You need to be thoughtful about it. You need to make sure that you are still ga um, gaining inferences in the right way. You need to be transparent about it. 
but there, but iteration, sort of iterating on your research design based on what you are learning through your research is a good thing, not a bad thing. And we need to not be sort of biased against it. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think it has happened in my research, that of my co-authors, and that of many of the people whom we interviewed for that book. It's interesting that the journals we read somehow don't represent the 200 other pieces of work that will never be seen by Absolutely. by anyone other than the author. Your your personal story as a as a researcher also illustrates one other thing. It seems to me it's sort of risk taking. When one gets intrigued with a problem, what are the odds that something will come of it? And mm-hmm. it's also it's always a a judgment under uncertainty, but it sounds like your dissertation work was like that. that it, was. it was a risk-taking decision. How, how do you think about risk-taking as a researcher? And what are the ingredients of feeling that a question might have a payoff mm-hmm. versus not? I guess there, there were two things that I took into account. One was I wanted to push the scholarship in a new, uh, I wanted to push the scholarship forward, but not in a way that was disconnected to what existed. So I was still looking at high court decision making. I was just adding on this compliance feature, which I thought there was a, an, a quite an easy justification why that was important. So it was a, it was an extension, but it wasn't a it wasn't a departure. It was connected to the research that originally existed, and I saw and argued for that connection. The other part is I I consult according to some people too much. I just, I probably sent 25 colleagues an email um, when I was making that change to Brazil and when I was considering other things about that project like that. So what, what did those emails say? What <laughs> they, were, they were very long and ponderous. So there were a lot of people who were very generous with their time to come back because I wanted, I couldn't just say, do you think I should look at compliance or, hey, should I switch to Brazil? I needed to give some background. So I actually wrote out a one-page Word doc that was sort of background that you'll need to answer this question so that when someone opened the email, they didn't face a wall of text. They faced a reasonably length email, but it had a one-page Word doc attached to it. And I laid out the very basics of the problem and said, please see the attached Word doc to to get more of the detail on the problem. And here is the precise question I want to ask. And do you feel that, I mean, that's a wonderful story about the importance of a network of mentors, especially when you're a young scholar, I think. And, And do you enjoy that still? Are, are there a set of people that you call on? To, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, there, there absolutely still are. And to some degree, it's the same people. Again, when I was uh, writing my dissertation, as I mentioned, comparative judicial politics was very new. So there weren't a lot of senior scholars. There were a whole lot of assistant professors. Maybe one or two had become associate. But now we've simply... I'm now. I, I now went through assistant professor and and an associate professor. Many of those are so. Many of them are associate, associate professors and full professors. So my my network hasn't changed uh, significantly uh, since those earlier days. Um, we're just all a little bit more seasoned. What is a little bit different is now there are people who are younger than me, who are assistant professors or who are graduate students. And I meet them because one of my one of my networks says, hey, you should talk to Diana about these things. And or we meet at the Institute for Qualitative and Multimethod Research or at APSA. And it's so gratifying to be able to pass on to them what the, these scholars did to me, which is just sit down for two hours at APSA with all these papers on a big table and say, OK, let's figure this out. Mm-hmm. I love doing that in general, but it's really gratifying to be able to do it with sort of generations of these of of of, um, of scholars behind me. I, I think it's actually one of the invisible between a set of critical substantive questions central to the to your discipline 
But then you have this stream of work that's totally methodological. You're interested in the method of inquiry as an end in itself. How did that happen? There's sort of two uh, roots to the genesis of that. One is my dissertation, My I had co-chairs of my dissertation, somebody who knew a lot about Latin America and someone who knew a lot about law, because at Berkeley there was not at the time anyone who knew a lot about both. And the person the, the on the Latin America side was David Collier, who is, had also sort of taken a turn towards methodology by the time that I was at Berkeley and, and continued that turn almost completely into, into looking at methodology. So I had a, a mentor who was a model with respect to that. And very early on, I can remember an email David sent me probably my second year in the program, and all it said was, hey, how about Diana Kay, methodologist? And I thought, no, I don't want to be, I certainly don't want to be just a methodologist, but that vote of confidence and that sort of idea stuck with me and, and has stuck with me till today. At David's uh, encouragement, I attended the Institute for Qualitative and Multi-Method Research, where I've now taught for 10 years, um, as a third year graduate student, and it was only the third year of IQMR. Uh, so it was very early. It was There were only 70 students there from all over the United States, from all the top universities. And it was the one of the few places at that point that taught qualitative methods because we were just beginning to realize that that was not an oxymoron and there actually was such a thing and we should be teaching and learning about it. Um, and I just loved IQMR. I loved the, the networking aspect of it. I loved that it opened my eyes to so many things that I just had no idea about before. And I think that it was David's influence and then that push to IQ, uh, at IQMR that made me think there's something, we need to think really, really deeply about how we're doing what we're doing or else the rest is garbage. Um, and I think that got inculcated on me in me really early as a graduate student and I simply, and I carried it through. So different disciplines in the social scientists, sciences have gone through different phases where the fight between qualitative and quantitative approaches to the discipline uh, has been fierce, but you you have emphasized multiple methods. So when you say that, what, what do you actually mean by that and, and why? Who, who should care about combining methods? So that there was, as, as qualitative methods in political came sort of online and political science more strongly, I think everyone began to realize with everyone began to realize with more or less acceptance of the of the other side that each each type of method has its strengths and has its weaknesses. It is not that one is simply stronger than the other. They simply do different things well. Um, and everyone who was open-minded enough to to realize that thought well, then it, it must be the case that the best way to get the best scholarship would be to combine them so that you can capitalize on the strengths of, of each of them. So as qualitative methods grew, so grew this interest, uh, the qualitative methods grew and strengthened, uh, so grew this interest in political science in, in multi-method research. And it has continued to grow as qualitative methods have continued to develop. So, and I'll, and I'll say two things about that. One is, it has continued to grow, but it's a big question in what way and, and how and to what end and with what consequence. So right now with two rising second year graduate students in the PhD program, we're actually cataloging all of the research methods that have been used in every article published in the top 10 journals in the last 20 years. 
So it's a un, huge undertaking to code all these articles. And one of our main questions is, what has multi-method research turned into? How is it done? Where is it done? Why is it done? And, and, and how, how do methods combine? So we'll know, as, when we finish that monstrous coding project, we'll know a little bit more about that. So, I th so what, what we'll know from that coding is how scholars combine the methods. I think we still have a tremendous amount to do in terms of actual substantive integrated multi-method research such that both sides of that are carrying water. That it isn't really just a model with a couple nice little stories about a few countries. And it isn't really a, a fully ethnographic piece that someone was advised to throw in a regression, so they do. That actually both are, are, are moving the inferential ball forward. And I think we, unfortunately, in political science, continue to have a lot of multi-method research that is not that. Um, but we are, are, given some of the developments that people like J.C. Wright are writing about an integrated, rather than a triangulation approach, an integrated approach to multi-method research, I think we're moving in the right direction. Um, slowly. Mm -hmm. So you say we have a ways to go. Do you view that as a, a weakness of how PhDs in political science are educated? Are we, we just not learning the skill portfolio that we need to be fully integrated? What, what do you think is going on? I think we're learning, I, I think what the, the, the challenge is is that we are learning the skills portfolio. We're learning the qualitative portfolio and we're learning the quantitative portfolio, but we aren't actively teaching people how to put them together. We sort of say, here's the one half, here's the other half, go figure it out. So I don't know this for sure, but I would bet if we looked at the top 25 political science programs, we would not find a methods course on multi-method research. I think we'd find quant sequences. I think we'd find a couple qualitative methods courses and maybe some field research courses, but we wouldn't find a course on integrating them. So I have proposed this to someone at, at Georgetown, that we actually teach a course on multi-method research and we begin to sort of work out these interstices and what, how these two things fit together. So we'll see if he takes me up on the offer. Tell us about this qualitative data repository. What, what's that about? So the qualitative data repository is an NSF-funded repository for qualitative research data uh, housed uh, at Syracuse University. So back in the QDR began to develop sort of in tandem with this newly emerging push for openness and transparency in the social sciences and across the sciences, actually. This is not a new conversation, obviously, but there was a regeneration of this conversation, probably beginning in 2010 or 2011 in political science. So the, the original genesis of QDR, however, really was not based on transparency. The original idea of QDR was the fact that there are researchers all over the world who will never have the wherewithal to gather research data themselves. But they have the methodological skills and the background, the knowledge to write fantastic research, but not the wherewithal to, to go to another country for six months and learn about it. And that's, that's true within the United States, that's true across the, across the globe. So how wonderful would it, would it be if there were a place where qualitative data could be shared just as quantitative data is shared and has been shared for decades in places like uh, ICPSR? How wonderful would it be if there were a dedicated place for qualitative data where people who engage in qualitative research could feel comfortable depositing their data because this place was run with by people who whose research looks like theirs does who understand them who understand the special qualities that that often attend qualitative data the human participants concerns the copyright concerns all of these concerns that are not absent with quantitative data but are perhaps more acute with qualitative data and so we applied for money and the second time was successful and launched the qualitative data repository as 
as in, in uh, January 2014, as it was progressing, so was the transparency conversation. So QDR also then becomes a place as well who, where people who, who are sharing their data in tandem with a particular research publication can put the data. Now it serves both of those purposes. But the original impetus of it um, was simply sharing research data so that they could be free um, and others could use them. It seems like this would be a wonderful resource for students too. Exactly, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yes, and and one of the things that we want, um, Robert Adcock at, at American University has used QDR data in teaching because if you want to teach someone how to do process tracing, you could download a data set from ICFSR and teach them, uh, sorry, from QDR and teach them. So we think both the data are both have absolutely have pedagogical purposes as well as transparency purposes as well as simply for the, for the secondary um, analysis of data. One of the uh struggles or constant challenges of a faculty member who's in uh, who's teaching and doing research at the same time is just juggling different duties in, in those parts of one's life. How do you juggle those two balls in a way that you feel like you're proving yourself on, on each side? Do mm -hmm. you integrate? Do you sequester things at different times of the day, days of the week? How do you do oh, it? Oh, how do I practically do it? Yeah. Okay, so I'll give you an intellectual answer as well and then the, the practical answer. I am a very regimented person, which anyone who knows me well will tell you. So I actually do, I write first thing in the morning. Uh, because if I don't write first, my, my vision is, my, my view is that if you want to do something in a day, you have to do it first, or else it's likely to get pushed by all the many other uh, um, responsibilities that one has. So I am up and writing by six. And depending upon what that day holds, how many meetings, how many classes, that will extend two hours or three hours. It's generally, unfortunately, not much more than, generally not longer than three or four hours. And that, and on the days that I can, I do the writing first thing. And then the, t the teaching is, is uh, sort of attends whatever classes I'm teaching. Generally, I'm grading on the weekends and in the afternoons. All of my classes are always in the afternoon. So I teach uh, and then mentor and do work with my graduate students and have office hours and all those things in the afternoons. So I do I do segment it in in the in the practical sense, in the intellectual sense I see I don't I don't think there's a faculty member who wouldn't say that they see that the the two is being being integrated and I'll and I'll give you two examples, one is. I very much wanted to turn the dissertation into a book as soon as I filed the dissertation. I thought I should get up the next day and open a new Word doc called book and start to write the book. And one of my mentors, at, not David Collier, but Bob Kagan, who was on the law side of my um, dissertation, uh, said, you know, you're starting at UC Irvine, you're not going to have time the first year to write the book. And you know, Diana, it's better that you don't. Because I didn't teach a lot. I had an NSF graduate research fellowship and other things at Berkeley, and I didn't teach a lot at Berkeley. So I was going into my first year at Irvine with nothing prepared. I had not a single syllabus. I had nothing. And so Bob said, and you're just going to have to relax into that. And you're going to spend a lot of this year working on your syllabi. If I know you well, you're going to get addicted to creating your syllabi. You're going to fall in love with doing that, and you're not going to write a lot, and it's going to be okay. And I nodded at Bob at our lunch table, and I thought, no, I'm not. I'm going to write the book in the first year. And he was completely right. I didn't write, I didn't do anything in the first year because I came, became completely addicted to creating my syllabi and to teaching, and I didn't write it all that year. And in fact, I don't think I, I started on the book until maybe the, the, my second fall. And that book is such a better book 
for my having waited that year and for my having taken that year to teach. Because as, as you well know, as we all know, to teach you really need to understand things deeply enough to pull up the simplified version of it, which you can't create without going through the really in-depth understanding of it. And that process pushed me to understand ideas and concepts and some of the things at the very basis of the dissertation much more deeply than I would have without that process. And it was a better book and I enjoyed working on it more because I had that, that one year of teaching. That's a wonderful story. Diana Kapaszewski, it was wonderful talking to you today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me.